welcome to the show and tell show of science. Science. So today there are three of us on the show, and we're you going to. You forgot to say when we, we bring, bring you the new news now. Okay, we bring you the new news now. All right, and 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 this new news, we've got two stories each that we're going to be sharing today, and the format is going to be that you, our listeners, and also us, in case there are no listeners, will vote on who has the best story to share, and at the end of the year, they get some prize that we have yet to decide. And the loser has to give the prize. Or something like that. I don't know. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm uh, Lauren Shell, and I have a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science, and on the show today we have Anna and Rochelle. I'm Anastasia Martinova, and I have a bachelor in biology, specifically in ecology. I will be starting my graduate studies in environmental engineering in several months. And my name is Rochelle Varga. I am still in school doing my undergrad uh, bachelor of science in cellular, molecular, and microbial biology. So, Rochelle, why don't you start us off with our first story? Me? Yep. Okay. So, this is completely irrelevant to my area of study, so I can't really, I don't know too much about this. It's more physics-y than anything else. But, this article is from Science Alert, just like a news kind of website-y for people who don't understand physics, like (laughs) me. (laughs) And it's about a new engine that NASA has tried and trialed to take us to, through space, and it could... They claim it could take us to Mars in 10 weeks without using any rocket fuel. Ooh. Ooh. What do they use? How does it work? I'm going to tell you. <laughs> does it run on hamsters? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It runs on something that weighs way less than hamsters. Okay, so the engine is called an electromagnetic propulsion drive engine, or EM drive. And so it basically takes electricity and converts it to microwaves and uses microwaves as a form of propulsion. But the biggest deal about it is that it completely breaks the fundamental concept of physics of like the conservation of momentum, which basically says in order for you to propel something forward, it has to push something in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't do that. <laughs> doesn't it push microwaves in the opposite no. direction? No. Oh. The microwaves will bounce off inside of a cavity inside the engine that somehow propels it forwards. And, like, the thing is, nobody really understands how it works. Typical. Yeah, typical science. So, But NASA, like, the guy who did it thought it was a huge deal, and then NASA kind of ignored it for a while. And then they replicated it within a vacuum, which they thought wouldn't work, but it did. And now, mind you, NASA's the only one who has actually replicated this, and it hasn't been peer-reviewed or tried by anybody else which is the next thing that other people have to look at. But it's, if it works, it's a huge deal because it has the potential to drive ships, solar systems away without any rocket fuel because all of the weight of the rocket fuel is gone. You don't have to carry heavy rocket fuel with you. That'd be pretty um, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think one of the other big plans for interstellar rotation that NASA has often talked about is solar sails mm-hmm. and using very large... Well, because you're in space, you don't get any resistance. Yeah. So you can ride the, the sunlight off Whatever. into the dis- distance. But it sounds like... This can travel faster than that. Oh, it can? Yeah. Sweet. And it also sounds like it could also work in deep space where you're not close to a star. Mm-hmm. That'd be it very can. useful. 
Um, one of the, like the more commercial things that they're using to look to use it for right now is more like using it to power cheap satellites into space to harvest solar power and then beaming that back to Earth, which I don't know how that works. Beam solar power. I don't know. That's just what it said. Lasers. Maybe you drop batteries. You charge the batteries and then you drop them. You can but do that. I think they would burn up on reentry. Probably. But you could try. You got a crazy cat. Based on your hamster comment, I just pictured batteries hitting hamsters on the head. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Popping from space. Raining hamsters and batteries. <laughs> yep. This this is the future of NASA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is why we're not physicists. No, I can't understand it. They've also like. Well, it sounds like they don't either. Uh, no, they don't. Do they have empirical data that they're uh, basing? Because yeah. I, I could understand if it's working on a phenomena that they don't have a solid explanation Are for. Are they it. sure their vacuum was a vacuum? Yes. Okay. It's NASA. They was it a vacuum? Dyson? <laughs> yeah, the best vacuum in the world. <laughs> <laughs> We're not endorsed by any uh We should uh, be sponsored. Ding. <laughs> Perfect. Is that the end of your so, story? Yeah, that's the end of my story. It's a pretty, pretty cool thing, pretty big deal. It's the future. And yeah. Watch out, aliens. If I could hum well, I would hum the Space. Star Trek thing here. But <laughs> I won't subject our we can, listeners like, to such a terrible... Post-process that in. Yeah. Something. yeah. Edit later. <laughs> cool. All right. Let's watch it. So, I'm getting my wisdom teeth out next week. So I've had teeth on the mind. You haven't had your wisdom teeth out yet? I know, right? What? Yeah. Well, they all came in properly. But oh, that's lucky then. It turns out... Modern thinking on dentistry is to take them out regardless, because because they need money. Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> for employment. But one thing I've always asked my dentist about is, can I ever get my enamel back? Like you go into the dentist and they tell you, oh no, you've got acid wear on your teeth. I have fancy cream for mm-hmm. that to rebuild enamel or Apparently. to like protect enamel. Both. Really? Yeah. Okay. It tastes like melons. So my article today, oh, I got notice of it on the Guardian. And it's about a new uh, treatment that's been in research for 10 years now, um, but it's called Electrically Accelerated Enhanced Remineralization. Ooh, okay, yeah. I know about remineralization. Yeah. So what they can do is use your tooth as an electrode and then rebuild the mineral coating on your teeth by electrifying your mouth. That's so cool. Yeah. So this... And terrifying. (laughs) A little bit, a little bit, but... It, it works in a similar way to chrome plating mm-hmm. on pieces of equipment. Yeah. Because then you can Im- immerse an object, and due to the electrical charge, it will attract particles to adhere to the surface. Mm-hmm. This is how and you can do gold-plated sure. jewelry, you know, chrome-plated fenders, and enamel-plated teeth. It's like grills reinvented. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Now oh you can God, have you literal can grills gold. in your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, gold on your teeth. Maybe okay. gold-plated teeth. Yeah, that's the next step here. Yeah, like we're we're talking about a whole new horizon of body mods. In your mouth. Well, if you In don't account for the expenses of having the procedure done, it would be much more inexpensive to gold plate your teeth rather than just get golden teeth put in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, and you probably waste a lot for like accidentally swallowing it or something. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, if it chips off, which, like, yeah. usually these coated things tend to chip. But, but you're using it to make an animal not gold, so... Yeah. I don't think we have to worry about that yet. So, I'm excited. <laughs> this has nothing to do with my wisdom teeth, but 
re-enamel your wisdom teeth before they yeah. get taken out. I mean, then everyone can keep all their teeth until that they die. excellent. Yeah, it'll be good. I like that. Mm. I whitened my teeth with those pressed white strips when I was eight. Yeah. And I thought if I left them on for longer, that it would uh, yeah, whiten my teeth more. Did you get terrible chemical burns in the inside of your mouth? No, but then it made my teeth terribly sensitive. So now I'm oh, I, no. I get cavities, and I, every time I go, I'll be like, I floss 95% of the days I haven't been here. And she laughs at me because she knows that I actually do, and then I have cavities anyways. That's unfortunate. But entertaining for my oral hygienist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am seeing her next week. Perfect. Hey, I have a dentist. I can tell her that she weeks. was on a podcast. Excellent. Excellent. She's famous. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. My turn? Yeah. Okay. My story is pretty cool. Herschel will like this one. Yeah. It comes really from... Like it. The Royal Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, and uh, the journal article is titled Sex-Based Differences in Immune Function and Responses to Vaccination. So basically what these scientists did is look at how females and males react differently to various vaccines, and they looked at quite a few vaccines for things like uh, TB, measles, mumps, rubella, yellow fever, influenza, and several others, and they the overarching, I guess, message is that females typically have higher antibody responses to vaccinations, and that also leads to more adverse reactions. I had an adverse reaction to the MMR when I was six months old. Is that because it had egg in it? Yeah. Are you allergic to egg? Yeah. That's terrible. Now you know. Well, I already knew that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, they don't talk about eggs here. This is more... Um, I think they don't make many vaccines with, like, incubating their eggs anymore. Why do they incubate them in now? I don't know, but... I just was told that I can get vaccines now, because some of them are no longer incubated in egg. Interesting. Maybe synthetic egg. Shout out to fans. If any of you work with vaccines or know how they are made, you can come on our show. Yeah, we need to know this. <laughs> I need vaccines. Anyways, so uh, what the study found was that the sex differences in the response to vaccines uh, span across ages and diverse groups of people, I guess, from all over the globe. So there are, I guess, several things that they think are responsible for this, although, like most scientific studies, they just recently found this out, so they don't really know what is responsible for this. So it should be brand new. So one of the things is hormonal influences and genetic and epigenetic factors. So these are things that are especially evident in pre-pubertal boys and girls and postmenopausal women and elderly men. And so this suggests that there are contributions made by sex hormones. There's mm-hmm. also a difference in the microbiome between men and women, especially since the microbiome is affected by the hormones Mm -hmm. and the hormonal differences through ages as well as between the sexes and the microbiome is basically the biota and the microbial community that lives on human skin in the gut in our oral cavity uh, around our genitals and in various other places on our bodies and the microbiome can be like attributed for a lot of your traits in like yourself like it can be obesity in some cases, can be attributed because it, like, affects your metabolism in different ways and stuff. Anyway, sorry. It's okay. (laughs) But, um... I have a question. Yes. Uh, Does epigenetic mean everything that's not genetic? 
or nope. So ep- genetics is like, the stuff that is normally like your genes, your genome, right? But yeah. epigenetics is also genetic. It just means it's kind of like nature versus nurture. So nature is genetics and what you get inherit from your parents. Epigenetics is like you can regulate what your what genes are expressed within your genome based upon things you're exposed to in your environment. Okay, so this is about yeah. gene activation. Yes, mm-hmm. it basically changes the physical structure of your genome to control which parts of it are exposed and not or not, and many things in your environment, like chemicals you're exposed to, can bind onto different parts of the genome and or if either, you're stressed like, out, like, yeah, you can unwrap parts of your genes can be activated like early in your childhood. Yeah, stuff. cool. Or you can like wrap and unwrap genes. They've studied that a lot with regards to like BPA found in plastics and all yeah. this kind of stuff, especially with pregnant women. And that's like a whole other story, but it's pretty cool. I but love anyways. epigenetics! <laughs> anyway, getting back to the microbiome. Uh, so diet and antibiotic use can shift uh, the microbiota on our bodies. Same as age-related different activities and uh, hormonal activities. So usually bacteria can metabolize sex hormones and mm, that's cool yeah and so if these hor- if these like hormones affect the way that our microbiota metabolize antibiotics and things as well when mm-hmm. it enters our bodies and obviously that would uh, change the effects that vaccination has on various genders and different ages so that was very interesting yeah so they're not really quite sure why this happens and they don't really know exactly what the differences are they just know that females have a more intense response so their whole conclusion from this paper is that more work needs to be done uh surprise surprise as is with any science paper really and that they think we should put in more effort to research why females are affected more and to probably design specific vaccines for males and females in different ages And another thing that I think is interesting is they differentiate between sex and gender here. So they talk about how another thing that might kind of skew this data in terms of why females have more adverse reactions is that in many societies it is more culturally accepted for females to kind of come and talk about these symptoms that they're having these reactions, whereas men usually don't. Keep it quiet. Yeah, Yeah. they they don't uh, approach medical professionals and tell them about these things. So that's something that they came across when they were just doing, I guess, collections across their different patients. That's were they cool. able to cross-reference that against uh, self-reported symptoms uh, in other studies for men versus women and factor out that bias? Not entirely sure because that's one of the things they bring up in the beginning of what this difference might m- like make in terms of uh, sociological I guess, effect, because with this study, what they did is they just actually took clinical patients, and uh, there's references to, for example, how female mice have higher T-cell counts after vaccinations than male mice, and they Mm. compared that to males and females, but they were saying how if you were to apply this research to society, you would have to consider the, like, gender norms as well, Um, and that would be, like, an interesting sociological study, but this basically focused just on like super fancy receptors. If you're interested, I can link this paper and you can look at the very specific receptors on all the different T cells uh, that they talked about. But that's pretty much it. How though, like, if we were to ever adapt this in the healthcare system, 
this is completely unrelated, but how how would this go like financially, like making multiple vaccines for the same thing for different like levels of hormone expression? I would imagine that it would depend on the vaccine itself. Yeah, I guess, because some have adverse reactions and some others. That and the difference between the uptake in these vaccines might not be actually related to the dead virus in question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this paper goes into specific details of what receptors on different T-cells and just antigens in the body react to what hormones. So if potentially there's, say, uh, you have estradiol or progesterone or testosterone that you're specifically looking at targeting one part of a cell that you're attempting to like activate with a vaccine, mm-hmm. then that's what you would target. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe research won't be specifically done for the reason of making specific vaccines for women versus yeah. for men. But as we learn more about vaccines and just different antigens in general, then it might kind of go hand in hand. Yeah, well, I, I think it's also common to see in public policy a delineation between the male and female vaccine uh, recommendations. Definitely it's common in the Western world to recommend HPV vaccines mm-hmm. uh, for young women in society uh, due to the associated risks uh, being towards cervical cancer, mm-hmm. um, which uh, it's not possible for guys to contract such a cancer. Because they don't have services. Lucky guys. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Yeah, this is an interesting article. Uh, definitely an observation and a good jumping off point for future research. Yeah, geez. yeah, which is really interesting because stuff like this, usually where you read it and then their conclusion is more research has to be done and this could be used, but we're not sure how, that doesn't really appear in the news as often. So yeah. you actually have to go into the papers and read these things that no one would actually be like crazy pop science about. Yeah. So but I thought it was really interesting. Awesome. Hmm. Awesome. Rochelle, what do you have up next? Oh, man, how do I top that one? Like, that was so cool. And this article that I have now, um, I'm, like, super passionate about because it combines two things that I love, which is genomics, which we just talked about, and plants together, the coolest things in the world. My article is on genome-edited plants without DNA. It's from Science Daily. And um, essentially, it's talking about how we can genetically modify food, plant food, without considering it a GMO, because we're not using DNA to actually modify it. So, I don't know what your guys' take on GMOs are, but, like, apparently 37% of the public believes that GM foods are safe, which is in contrast to support from 88% of scientists. I'm not technically a scientist, but I'm on the 88% side. I think I think one of the big difficulties with talking about the, uh, the ethics around GMO is you have to separate the idea of a gen- genetically modified plant mm-hmm. from the company that's doing yeah. the genetic modification. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Montesanto, for example, is uh, has a pretty bad rap for <laughs> yeah. using genetically modified foods to force a monopoly in, in smaller markets. And I, I think a lot of times these two issues become conflated. When mm-hmm. people are angry about GMOs, they're actually angry about some of the companies and how they put these this research into practice. Yeah, I can totally see that. A lot of it, too, is just, like, people are concerned that adding DNA to a, an organism will have the effect that we want in manipulating it, but will also have undesired effects that we don't know about and can't know about until 
like 10 years down the road. Anyways, on with this article. It talks about the method CRISPR-Cas9, which if you have been living under a rock for the past two years, you will not know what CRISPR-Cas9 is. But just for those of you that have been living under a rock, I'll let you know. Myself included. Yeah. I don't know what CRISPR-Cas9 is. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was discovered in 2013, so two years ago, uh, by two amazing women, Jennifer Duda and Emmanuel Chapentier. And I love them. They're my heroes. Um, <laughs> if you're listening, you should I love you. join us for a segment. Who is in the patent fight? Take it to court. Okay, that's completely beside the point. Anyways, they're in a patent war with another guy who also like claims he used it first in humans. Anyways, it's a method that stands for clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. Can you say that again slower? Clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. So like groups of small things in little groups. Yeah, it's a it's a that sequence. I know what palindromic repeats are. We learned that it's a sequence in a genome. Yeah. So basically, CRISPR Cas9. Cas9 is an enzyme. CRISPR is the method. It comes from. Don't um, they use that for like gluing things together? Because mm-hmm. they're like palindromes, and they mm-hmm. like restriction enzyme them, and they will. It is, but it's taste way them. simpler than that. So okay, so CRISPR Cas9. Cas9 is a nuclease that uh, originates in bacteria. And what it does is it's kind of like the immune system for bacteria. So when a virus infects it, uh, the bacteria Cas9 enzyme will cut up the DNA, or not the Cas9 enzyme, but an immune system enzyme cuts up the DNA and then incorporates that into the bacterial genome, which then can be transcribed in or translated to RNA. Those RNAs are called guide RNAs that will pair up with this nuclease, Cas9, and then whenever the bacteria is reinfected with this virus again, the bacteria can recognize the genome, like the infecting RNA, with the RNA that it produces itself from the previous virus. So they like bind together, then Cas9 will cut the infecting RNA, and then it'll be immune to the virus. So... So we're using bacteria. Mm-hmm. To do the work of splicing up pieces of DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the enzyme in order, from bacteria. Yep. In order to build uh, a system that recognizes a virus. Yeah. So essentially, this has been adapted. No, thanks for explaining that. I was lost. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm just trying to repeat back yeah. to see yeah. if I understand. No, yeah, you're getting it. So essentially, this has been kind of modified, and it's been used to create genetic modifications. Not in human. Well, actually, one Chinese group has done like modifications in humans, which is a whole other thing, but they did it in like non-viable embryos that would have died anyways. Anyway, it's been used to create genetically modified animals like mice, monkeys, frogs, fish, and it's the cheapest and fastest and most efficient way at cutting DNA. That's what CRISPR-Cas9 does. It'll cut DNA at a very specific site with high accuracy. And now, when you cut DNA, you create a double-stranded break, because DNA is in two strands in a cell. Mm -hmm. And from there, you can edit DNA in two ways. You can either just cut it and then leave it, and the cell will repair the DNA itself by a process called non-homologous end-joining, which basically just means it sticks the two pieces of DNA back together. But in that process... So this is is like taking this famous photo of the double helix, cutting it. 
and then yes, using the paper paste double helix. Yep. to stick it back together. Sticking it back together, but in the process, some of the pieces of the DNA, the base pairs, are lost. So that will create something called a knockout gene. If you cut a piece of DNA, the middle of the gene, and then some of the bases are deleted, the gene doesn't work anymore. So you can create a knockout, or you can also, while you create a cut, introduce another piece of DNA with regions of homology that the cell naturally recombines, called by homologous recombination, into the genome. So you can insert other pieces of DNA. D- does the in. homology mean that it that it's compatible with yep, the other parts has, of DNA? It means that the DNA has regions that are the same as the host genome. So basically what happens is there's double-stranded DNA that you insert, and then the other double-stranded DNA of the host has regions that are the same, yep. like base pairs in order. And the host cell will like recombine the new DNA into itself in that place where there is a break. It'll be like, hey, this puzzle piece fits. Come. Yeah. But oh, the puzzle okay. piece yeah. has extra yeah. stuff inside of it. Okay, yeah. so, so it's, you're like, it's like taking it. a puzzle, yeah. and the homologous DNA that you're splicing in is a new piece with a different picture. Yeah. 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 Anyways, all this aside, now that I've explained how it works, it's blown up in the past two years because it has been so cheap and so fast and efficient, and it's like, just, it's going to revolutionize the world, there's just ethics behind it that they have to go through first, and patent wars. But this group in South Korea has used it to genetically modify plants. But what they did, instead of inserting a plasmid that contains the Cas9 gene, which is normally how you do it, so to get a gene... And a plasmid is like... like Circular. Yeah, circular DNA from bacteria. You can put whatever genes you want in it, essentially. Instead of inserting that into a plant, which is DNA, which would be considered a GMO because you're inserting DNA, Mm -hmm. they've isolated the the Cas9 protein by itself and created a guide RNA, which can be used to cut the genome at specific sites and create a knockout just by deleting a little bit of the gene. Mm -hmm. And so they've done this, and it's like a huge deal because this doesn't use DNA at all. It just uses a protein and RNA and is technically not considered a GMO. And so you could genetically modify crops to be like more resistant to climate change or drought or whatever, and it wouldn't be considered a GMO, so you're not... So is that the technicality? That's the important yeah. part here? Is yeah, making it just not technically a GMO? Yeah. Okay. And so it, you're not like adding genes or adding DNA that might have a random effect that you don't know about. So is this method, so in, instead of modifying the, the I guess, the, the like, plant code, the mm-hmm. DNA of the yeah. plant, uh, you instead give it uh, these guides. Mm-hmm. The uh, protein. And it'll just, it'll cut the plant DNA. Yeah, so it'll take something out. And then take something out. So okay, it'll turn so, off so the guide protein will do the modification or... Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like telling the plant DNA to, to make the change itself. Yeah. Um, and it, is this, do they feel less risky for introducing uh, yeah. like you um, know, things that we weren't expecting? It's, it, there's the only thing that they don't know, the, the whole reason that you can't use it in humans yet is because what if this DNA gets cut in a spot that you didn't recognize? So when you're making your guide RNA mm-hmm. that binds to the protein that then binds to your DNA, you create, like, it's like a 20-nucleotide sequence. 
which statistically, like, you're not very likely going to find another spot in the genome that has the same sequence. But you might find a similar sequence, but right? there, Yeah, it doesn't have to be exact. You could have, like, similar homology, not 100% match, but still close enough that the, the nuclease could cut there, and then it might mess up something that you didn't intend it to. But in plants, if you sequence their whole genome, which is actually huge, like most plants have bigger genomes than humans, most of the sequences of genes that you want to knock out are pretty on their own. So yeah, hmm. I don't know. It's just exciting because it's like it's really cheap and efficient. Everybody loves using it because it's so easy just to make your 20 nucleotide guide RNA, and that's all you need. Cool. And cool. you could yeah. Is this something I can do at home? You can. No, I don't know. You can actually <laughs> order stuff, though. Like, you'd need a lab, but... Yeah, but like what... Yeah, you can order stuff. Like, you can order RNA. Okay, okay. And some lab will make it for you, and that's why it's so cheap, because all you have to do is put that in a plasma. Is there, like, an easy project you can, you can like, mm. take on? Like, I, I'm, I'm sure Me, making cool. tomatoes frost-resistant is a little bit more complex. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the what they did in this um, paper... But could you modify, like, a clover... To always have four leaves. Oh my god! I would be the, be the luckiest person, person in the world. In the world, I mean, and no one would know. Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think this don't is. Let this get out. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Listeners, don't tell anyone. Yeah, don't tell anybody. We've got big this, is, this is our new. This is our new focus. <laughs> but yeah, it's like it's a huge deal to me because I've always also been interested in, like, it's been known that the population of the planet is growing so at like an exponential rate. We're not going to have enough food to feed everybody if we keep growing this quickly and so this is a way that you can modify plants to be resistant to things um like drought for example or we could make soil into grain or that yeah cool and you could feed more more of the population hopefully <laughs> hopefully hopefully without it being a gmo if we don't die first like without the crops <laughs> being super controversial so cool cool that awesome. was my big ramble on CRISPR-Cas9, and I think it's amazing. So. Today I learned. Mm-hmm. I, I've been living under a rock for the past two years, <laughs> yeah. and now, and now I know what CRISPR-Cas9 is. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. My next article is... Oh, I read about this. About a cool little robot. I'm sure people have seen these little quadcopters that are starting mm-hmm. to get a little bit popular, but this is a different kind of drone. This is a little underwater drone, and oh, it is... Cool. It is a submarine drone. What it does is it hunts crown of thorn starfish <gasps> that are destroying the Australian yeah. Great Barrier Reef. Epidemic. Yeah. So invasive species. Yes, invasive species can be a dramatic change for a legal, local ecosystem. And do you know why crown of thorns is so hard to get rid of? Tell me. Okay, so when you find it, if you like go to pick it up, it'll just release a billion like of its eggs at once as it's like afraid that it's going to get killed or whatever as like a response mechanism so then all of those get fertilized and they become new ones and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger so the act of trying to get rid of them is makes the problem hard. worse yeah. Hey, yeah and like a lot of people are like that's crown of thorns that's bad we should get it out of here and they pick it up unknowing that it does this and then you just make the problem even bigger that sounds like humans during big wars. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> um, Classic us just screwing stuff up. What they've been doing up to now is employing scuba divers to go down. The method of killing the actual starfish is that you have to poison it mm-hmm. 
not once, but multiple times, mm -hmm. with minutes in between each dose of poison in order to successfully kill it. These are very resilient starfish. Mm -hmm. And it's, one, challenging, and two, expensive. Do you to, know how many there are uh, that have to be killed? Uh, probably many. Too many. I'm, I'm not sure. I can Google it while you tell the story. Please, ask okay. ask the Googles. I will ask the Google. Do you remember Ask Jeeves? That was a yeah. thing. Ask Jeeves? No. The website what? is a search engine. I totally engine. missed this. I was, was, like, I, was, I, was I was like on the Google train. 2000 like was like its big year. I think I was in the third grade. Yeah. <laughs> I, rem I remember when everyone was still on Yahoo. I do too. I had and a Google Yahoo was the underdog. Yeah, yeah, see, Ask Jeeves a question. Yeah, but now it's just ask.com. Yeah, now it's just ask.com. But before, gone. Jeeves would be there, and you would it would say, ask Jeeves, and you would type it in, and that's what they taught us to. Like, that's how we looked things up when we were little. Interesting. And it was more interactive. I guess they got upset with Jeeves and fired him. Yeah, yeah. maybe he wasn't very Maybe he insightful. got old and died. Oh, my goodness. Poor Jeeves. <laughs> Jeeves does sound like an old butler name or something. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's, like, from, from something. Yep. Huh. So, the underwater drone... What it does, it has a little poison injection cannon, and it shoots little needles into the starfish and uses computer vision to recognize which starfish it's poisoned already and which ones it hasn't, so it can wait around and then poison the correct starfish. That's so cool. This past summer I spent it in Fiji, like, scuba diving, doing research for sharks and on, um, like, marine, like, reef health down there. And yeah, we saw lots of crown of thorns destroying lots of wreaths, and it was so sad because like we couldn't go get them to get rid of them because obviously it would just make the problem worse. And so yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. How, do you know how much like it would make cost to make those drones? I imagine the drones themselves aren't particularly cheap. Yeah. I don't know exactly how much they cost, but I think probably less than the than ecosystem. Well, yes. well, because the al yeah. alternative is to employ divers. Yeah. yeah, and they have to like carefully scoop. They can do it like carefully scooping up the shell or the um, not the shell, the starfish, and putting them in a box before they release their eggs. That's like one way to catch them, or like yeah, you said, poisoning them mm -hmm. like once every minute. Actually, when I was in Russia, I went to uh, like this summer, this past summer, yep. I met a girl who was doing ecology there at an institute in Kaliningrad and we went to an economics of ecology course yep. and it was like a super interesting lecture and they talked about the breakdown that they have for the mathematical formula for whether for how effective it is to deploy certain means of prevention of ecological and all, all sorts of environmental harm mm -hmm. as compared to how much it would cost to repair the damage and how much would be lost in things like ecotourism or just goods mm -hmm. that are dependent on it, that ecosystem. And it's a super complicated process, and I thought it was just super interesting because not a lot of people actually do such an intensive analysis when they consider environmental impact to various projects. Yeah, and I, so. I think that's an important analysis. And uh, in many cases, ecotourism has provided the economic oh, means to, for sure. to like allow in, for conservation. In Fiji, that's what it is. Like All of them live off of tourism down there. From doing like shark dives or scuba dives at the reefs and stuff, like a lot of them are employed by dive shops. And yeah. That's how they make their money. So. Yeah, and it's it's really positive when they can align both their tourism economic interests with the preservation of mm -hmm. the environment. Conservation. That's so cool. 
Yeah. Ah. So this this drone itself can. I'm so excited. <laughs> so this drone itself works in eight-hour shifts, and it can uh, detect and and destroy up to 200 starfish per session. Oh my god, that's huge. That's a big deal. How, how many per session? 200. Uh, 200 in an eight-hour span. Okay. Okay, I found out what an outbreak is. An outbreak is when there's more than 15 starfish per 100 square meters per hectare. Okay. Yeah. So that's So how many how kilometers. many square kilometers can it do with 200 then? Like 2 square kilometers, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it it can it can like save 2 square kilometers every 8 hours with reef. That's huge. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a hard working little submarine. Uh, exciting, exciting. Okay. So, I think, Anastasia, okay. you're the last yeah. up. Time for my story. Mine is in my favorite topic of sexuality and attraction in humans. And this is a study that looked at why people are attracted to more deviant personalities. So things that, uh, qualities in people that you would not necessarily find very reliable in long-term relationships. So this looked, the study looked at a thousand heterosexual men and women with a variety of pathological personality traits. And these are things like people who are impatient or impulsive, neurotic, and other such qualities that are considered generally unpleasant. And the conclusion that the study came to was that the people who have these pathological qualities actually have more mates and tend to have more children in general and they were wondering why this is it's not entirely people are not entirely certain there are many studies in sexology done on this but one of the things that they thought was maybe how both males and females who are pathologically reckless are attracted to short-term partners so maybe this kind of explains why they would have more partners overall is because they're more, I guess, into short-term relationships. And if they're pathologically reckless, I imagine they have a few more oops babies statistically. Yeah. And that's actually another thing where this study was done by voluntary questionnaires, and the people for the study were directed by physicians. So because the sample size was taken from one location and people voluntarily answered these questionnaires, they were thinking how if people who classify themselves under these pathological traits rated themselves as higher in terms of having more mates and being more attractive. They're also the people that are more likely to lie about those things because they have these pathological traits to begin with. Mm. So it's not an entirely non-biased study. Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure they could make some guesses about how much that biases the data and then see if they still have a significant result after that. That's true. I'd have to check their statistics and be super scrutinizing. But it's just interesting because this is a topic that's very frequently talked about in sexology and different sociology studies where men, well, and men especially, men with more reckless traits are more desirable, even though that also means that they usually, based on evolution, won't, will have multiple mates or won't stay around to take care of just the one Is that, is that generally accepted? Finally? Yeah, that's, like, that's a very generally accepted over different types of research. Okay, because yeah. to be honest, that, that sounds a little surprising to me, and I wouldn't believe it. I'd be interested in seeing that. Well, there's actually, the thing is, they there's different types of the months where women, or of the month where women are attracted to different types of men. So when they're ovulating, they're more attracted to these very, like, high-risk types that are very masculine and 
more likely to be impulsive and dangerous and potentially not very reliable, but when they are uh, not ovulating yeah. on during different type, times of the month, then they're attracted to more, I guess, like more reliable and caring mates. Yeah, and this is statistical, of course, so not yeah. applying to any individual. individual. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the kind of rationale behind it with evolutionary psychology is that when you're ovulating, you just want to procreate, so you want to gain the genes of someone else's like some man, but then when you're not wanting to reproduce and you might be pregnant or whatever, you want to secure a mate that will like take care of you and your offspring for a longer period of time. Interesting. So, yeah, so it's very, like, strange because even though now we're monogamous, there's a whole, like, debate about that, whether our monogamy in society is it's more, natural. like, societal or yeah. if it's... Because if you look at primates, too, it's like men are driven by... Or men. Male primates are driven by access to female primates, and female primates are driven by their like access to food. So all really females care about is getting food, and if they can find Does this a male... Does this vary with uh, different primate groups? For um, some reason, I feel this might be different between some, chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, yeah. Some, not many. It depends on, like, too, the society of primates, like, if they're more, like, patrilineal, if that's really a word, or matrilineal quotation marks, or depending to um, how many uh, offspring they give birth to. For example, if you give birth to twins, the female is more likely to be polyamorous and employ more men and like keep them guessing at who the parent is, who the father is, so that they can get more help like protecting themselves and getting food. Whereas if it's more certain, like if you have one offspring, you can usually take care of them more on your own, and so you're not really worried about like securing male mate. So within primate groups, then uh, other than humans, there's some research around, mm-hmm. around that. Are the paternal and matri- <laughs> maternal social constructs in quotation marks for primates because that's it's difficult to discern from their social structure? No, it's just I don't know a better word for it. <laughs> I don't. I can't remember. Or, exactly or is it because like, that these terms themselves might not necessarily apply to, no, to other yeah. primate groups? Like some primates. The main group is like males, and then females come and go. In other groups, it's like male or the females all stick together, and like males have to compete for them. I think it's the same like matriline and patrilines. Okay. But yeah, that's why the quotation. Cool, cool. So yeah. my my first thought about this uh, research that you're that you're talking about is I wonder if they have some backing research talking about uh, how hereditary these traits are. Well, that's the thing they don't really know. Okay. But one thing that they mentioned is that it is very likely that people with these traits choose partners with the same traits because there have also been studies done where, in general, humans and other potential animals, depending on what time, like what part of the menstrual cycle, I guess, or like the ovulation cycle the individual is in, they will choose either individuals that are similar or different from them Mm -hmm. based on smells like pheromones various traits how people look just like all a bunch of cues and they're saying that if predominantly these studies show that people tend to be attracted and choose mates that are more similar to them then the fact that these people with these pathological traits are attracted to each other and then have these children with the same traits is why this is still yeah, kind of I, persistent. But I think that would be the missing link, right? Yeah. They, is if their children have these traits or not. Mm-hmm. Right? Which is like one of the kind of things they're showing, especially, well, with biological psychology, the thing is, because everything is so relative, because psychology is a relatively soft science, I guess you could say, 
it's hard to test these things and especially be conscious of all the biases. So they have all these theories that are magical and explain things and a bunch of them contradict each other. But I feel like people do this research more for just like, this is cool and want to know why. But we're um, not exactly sure like what applies to what and whether it applies to different societies or um, better than others. What about, like, this is for heterosexual relationships. How do you think yeah. this would affect, like, homosexual ones? Where they obviously can't have, like, a child of their own, but maybe if they adopted, would they be more like, I don't know if you can really tell what traits a baby will have, but... Yeah, I guess that would like, bring in a good question. The epigenetic aspect of it, like, could you have a child that you adopt that also still displays these traits because of epigenetics influences from the parents? Yeah. Nature versus nurture. My favorite question of all time. But the interesting <laughs> thing here is that they said that these obsessive-compulsive males, but not females, were more successful at securing long-lasting mates. So men with these qualities were more desirable in a long-term relationship goal, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. rather than females. Yeah. But when you look at just females, the more neurotic females had 34% more long-term mates and 73% more children than the average female. So, I guess these qualities benefit the male more, but they still somehow benefit the female. And these are qualities that are uh, associated with instability, anxiousness, insecurity, and other such not typically desirable traits. Where benefit in this context is the goal of having children. Which is very strange. But one of the things that is suggested here, which is a very, like, typical evolutionary... I guess explanation in things like ecology is the whole idea of um, evolutionary handicap. So that's when a certain trait is not beneficial to the individual, but because the individual has survived to pass on its genes regardless of this handicap, it is picked because it means that the rest of its genes are better. So like, for example, peacocks with their large tails, larger the tail, it means the harder it is for it to get away from predators, but because it still survives, like regardless of the large tail, yeah, then it, it means it, that the rest of its genes are have high fitness, so it still makes up a part of the gene pool. So in this case, they're saying that people who can act so reckless and very impulsive, but still survive, that's attractive because I guess the, it, the rest the of their traits, of the, the yeah, tail. the rest of their traits are great. So it's like, hey, you can afford to act like this terrible person because you're whatever, like big and fit maybe you're smart maybe you can like get away with all of these things and i don't know overcome your impulsiveness and recklessness in life interesting, by, by interesting. other things and yeah <laughs> life in the fast lane the human peacock <laughs> pretty much and i think this interesting quotation here uh this is done it it was the study was done i'm not sure what country it was conducted in but uh the respondents answered in spanish but uh, the doctor asked a patient why he married a neurotic woman, and the man responded, this is a translation from Spanish, I like her because she's very woman, uh, which is interesting because it, like the study says, that this may reveal a link between gender differences and stereotypes. <laughs> it may reveal is very lightly <laughs> a light, light statement. But yeah, so that's kind of strange. That's interesting. That's interesting. That's That's a big... That's a big question to try and come up with hard hard numbers for because of the number of factors that are involved, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, kudos to them for giving it a shot. Of course, and there are so many. There's so many books you can read on this and why people are attracted to different things. There's actually a great book that I read. I think it was called uh, 
why men like blondes. <laughs> I think that's why it, what it was called, but it was talking about, like, the evolutionary advantages, or I guess, like, perceived advantages of having light hair, or, like, the blonde bombshell, with, okay. like, the large breasts. So I was saying how, for example, usually when people have, when people are younger, they have lighter hair, and it gets darker with age, so lighter hair is just associated with youth. Interesting. Because even people who are blonde, their hair usually gets, like, more brownish, I guess you could say. It still stays blonde, but it's not as light. And um, with regards to things like breasts, it was like the bigger they are, the easier it is to see that they're sagging. So it's also an indicator of age. Oh, okay, okay. So it was things like that where, you know, people are trying to hypothesize and explain these very stereotypical trends in society because they're probably there for a reason and not just on a crazy whim. Potentially, so, potentially. Yeah. So, but it's a very interesting field. Yeah, uh, I would, I would be cautious though because I feel many of the trends that are portrayed by the media are not necessarily the overall trends within the society. Mm-hmm. So I would hope that if they're like trying to justify why it is that the blonde bombshell is attractive, that they first show mm-hmm. that it actually is. Actually, I read a study regarding it was this, this guy who wrote a statistical analysis on essentially this website database of all the porn movies ever created yeah and he got all of their data and he was trying to find out what the average porn star looks like among other like questions he was asking and so he found out that he asked what was the average height the hair color the breast side like dimensions because they do like the whole like how big your hips are and stuff like that in some cases uh what they're willing to do because that's also on their profile where Mm -hmm. they're from and obviously all of them say they're from florida or california which is hilarious (laughs) <laughs> but it was actually very interesting because in terms of how many movies what porn stars have done on average, it's like a medium height with who is a brunette and she has a B cup. Okay. So it's not at all what you what the stereotype is, mm. which I think is interesting. Interesting. How it's like all blonde, yeah, kind of thing. But it was like just if you look at the entire and it's kind of like IMDb, so it actually has all the porn on there, not including amateur, and it's actually like. The average woman in porn is the average woman in real life. In life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is cool. That makes Wonderful sense. Wonderful how that works. Well, I wonder if they would be able to maybe try and, and take some of this data to normalize it to see how much uh, of a non-standard persona that so much of the media provides. Hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. I'd yeah. ha- I'll big have to big look topics, complex questions, yeah. lots of factors. And they had like the thing where he looked into how on average, how long the career of a man and a woman is, and it was, like, how a woman stays in only for several years, but they get paid a lot more, mm-hmm. and it's easy to get into the industry, whereas for a man, they stay a lot longer, but it's harder to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. So they have, like, a longer porn career, which is super interesting, and they talked about what... Av- I, don't, I don't know the details. I don't remember them anymore, but it was the average age, the average age people get in and get out, how many people are willing to do what, because sometimes, like, certain fetishes are seen as very like common mm-hmm. so he looked at that and just analyzed this shrap load of data he got from somewhere i wonder if you would consider a male with a long porn career a long-standing member <laughs> <laughs> and on that note <laughs> perfect well thank you for tuning in and listening to our show uh, where we bring you the new news now and yeah. stay tuned for voting <laughs> Perfect. Goodbye. Bye.